Welcome to Inside Divorce. My name is Hindel Grossman, the owner of a law firm called Grossman & Associates LTD, located in Newton and Nantucket, Massachusetts. This is Inside Divorce, a podcast related to divorce topics. And today I'm sitting with Jesse Stein, who's a senior loan officer at Fairway Mortgage. So hi, Jesse. Hi, Hindel. How are you? Good, thanks. Glad to see you. Jesse and I have known each other a while, and today we're going to be talking about um, all things mortgage-related, how to apply, what income's important, how to figure out the ratios, the mystery of underwriting, what ownership means, etc. So first, tell us about yourself, Jesse. So I have been writing mortgages since 2003, and I specialize in situations where people need help with understanding what their options are when properties are held jointly, but people don't necessarily want to hold them together anymore. So very happy to be here and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Okay. Well, so when you say when they don't want to own property together anymore, I'm thinking you're thinking about when people get divorced. I am. Okay. So clear clear that up. So let's just talk about the mystery of mortgage applications. What's considered when someone wants to apply for mortgage like just forget about the divorce for a minute. Just say, generally speaking, what income is considered if you have two people who own a home? Well, W-2 income is the easiest. Uh-huh. We do loans all the time for people who are just starting jobs. Yeah. We do work with a lot of business owners. The way that non-W-2 or self-employed income is evaluated is on a two-year average okay. of what's reported on tax returns. Yeah. So if people own a business... We take the two-year average of the profit or whatever distributions they receive, and that's the income that we use. We can use capital gain income, dividend income, again, on a two-year basis, Mm -hmm. assuming that the assets are still in place, and we look at the asset statements to establish that. But I would say more than half of the time, it's based on a base salary, in some cases, bonus income. Okay. So you you currently work at Fairway Mortgage, right? I do. So I've been at Fairway Mortgage since June of 2017. Before that, I was at Mortgage Master for nine years. Before that, I was at uh, Chase Mortgage for a year. And then before that, Summit Mortgage. So there's my resume. All right. Thank you. Um, Is there much difference in, in the lenders and the way they operate? Absolutely. So one of the reasons I love Fairway is it's a non bank lender, meaning we don't do savings accounts, we don't do checking accounts. Yeah. There's not a ton of bureaucracy. We are heavily regulated and evaluated by the division of banks and the federal regulators. And we adhere to those regulations very stridently. But with internally, uh, we have a great platform and there's not a ton of bureaucracy in-house. So it allows me and my team to uh, work very effectively and quickly to get answers and solve situations. Banks are great for the account holders, and I understand people using banks as a resource. I found my experience working at a bank, it was very cumbersome. So I like being able to move quickly and um, not have a lot of red red tape in-house. I think actually a very interesting topic to discuss the differences between lenders, because most people just shop for rates, right, and terms. They don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Service and delivery are very important especially when people are buying a primary residence. We do a lot of refinances, especially right now, rates are at a three-year low. So Ah, about half my business right now is refinancing people that I closed purchase loans for within the last 36 months. But the real pressure is on 
situations where people are buying their house, mm -hmm. especially first time buyers. I just talked to my client who's moving here from California with his children, wants to get into a house as soon as possible so that his kids can start school after Labor Day. Right. So that's going to be a fire drill, but we can make it work. We can do it. We can do it. Yes, because you don't have a lot of bureaucracy at Fairway Mortgage. Right. And, and a great team and a lot of volume, especially with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh -huh. So it's... It's, it's great that we're a non-bank lender, but we're also a very high volume mortgage origination company. Yeah. So we, we do enough business that we have a lot of pull with Fannie Mae and Freddie to get great pricing, great rates for our clients. So can you explain a little bit the relationship between Fairway and Freddie and Fannie? Yep. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac is the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. Fannie Mae is the Federal National Mortgage Association. We call them Fannie and Freddie because they're easy to say and easy to remember. But they don't sound very different. They are very similar entities. They have slightly different guidelines, uh -huh. but they do effectively the same thing, which is turn mortgages into bonds. And the bonds are purchased by investors from all different backgrounds, a lot of you know hedge funds, mutual funds. Everyday investors buy those bonds. I see. So are the underwriting guidelines different for Freddie and Fannie? Slightly. There are slight differences. For example, Fannie Mae right now has no uh, approval process for two to four unit condominium associations. Yeah. It's a streamlined process where we just get master insurance. Freddie Mac is more lenient in situations where there's a non-occupying co-borrower. So it's these little nuances that differentiate the two agencies. So I'm not sure if they collaborate, but they seem to work out that they meet everybody's needs. I see. So either Freddie will offer something that Fannie doesn't exactly. and vice versa or more favorable terms. To be more precise, they will purchase loans from entities like me. Like Fairway. Exactly. Yeah. That meet those needs. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae do not lend to people. Yeah. They buy loans and turn them into bonds. I see. So part of the back room underwriting is that you know what Fannie and Freddie will accept. So it makes the loan easier to make. As I like to explain to people, half of my job is retail. Uh -huh. In other words, working with our clients uh -huh. to uh, find solutions and get them into homes. The other half of my job is the secondary market, which is working with investors such as Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. There's also a number of community banks and large national banks that do the same thing. We tend to use Fannie and Freddie for conforming loans. So that's anything up to 484350 on a one-unit property. specific number. Very. So at 484351 that's a jumbo loan, unless we're in a county that has a higher limit. It gets very complicated. Oh, I won't bore you with all those details. Oh, but by county because real estate values are higher in certain exactly. counties. So Middlesex County and Worcester County, for example, have very different levels. Okay. So long and short of it, we use community banks and national banks for non-conforming or jumbo loans and Fannie and Freddie typically for the conforming loans. I see. Okay. So thank you for that background. And it takes an expert like you to understand the nuances of those kind of uh, lenders and yeah. terms, huh? <laughs> and your experience in the industry. I, it took me a couple of years to just understand what I was doing, to be honest with you. Yeah. So And it changes. <laughs> it does. It, you know what? And that's true. The guidelines change very frequently, training and, and understanding what's what's happening with all these guidelines is a big part of my world. All right. Thanks. All right. Just getting back to the approval process. So you look at someone's income, 
W-2 income, you said, being the simplest, self-employment income being a little more complicated. You take an average of two years. And what's the ratio? I mean, how much can someone borrow? So for a first-time buyer, we can lend up to 97% of the purchase price. No kidding. Wow. Or appraised value, the lower of the two. Yeah. First-time buyer is defined as not having owned real estate in the last three years. Okay. For folks that are looking to purchase and have owned real estate more recently, but still want to go with a low down payment, we have FHA. Yeah. And that's three and a half percent down. Okay. And then you get into cash out refinances, which is a little bit more relevant to our topic that we're talking about. Because what I find with marital dissolution is one one person wants to stay in the house Mm -hmm. or keep the house and the other person wants money. Yes. So that's called a cash out refinance, which is different than a purchase loan. A cash out refinance, we will do 75% of the appraised value. If we're talking about a divorce scenario and one spouse wants to stay in the marital home and the other one isn't going to stay in the marital home, and there's a buyout by the one who stays in the marital home. So how do you approach that from an applicant point of view? So you call it a buyout and I call it a cash out refinance, but it's the same thing. Okay. We're, we're solving somebody's problem. I'll use your words. Cash out. <laughs> the cash out refinance. So the person that's going to stay in, in the property and keep it needs to be credit worthy. Yes. So back to what you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. How do we establish that? Mm-hmm. We pull a credit report mm-hmm. and we go off the middle FICO score. We get FICO scores, which is uh, the credit score for the person. Yes from TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. And it's the most detailed, thorough credit report possible. It's everything that the person has ever done, whether or not they paid on time, and how often they did it. So it's a very thorough history, and the scoring algorithm tells us how likely they are to repay a mortgage. It also impacts their rate and closing costs. So it's really important to maintain great credit. Separate but equal to that, income. We look at the cash flow. As I said, there's a number of ways to establish that cash flow from W-2, bonus, self-employment, dividend, etc. Separate from equal from that is assets. Mm -hmm. We need to oftentimes show some reserves Mm post-closing. And by reserves, I mean money in the bank. A little cushion. Yep, a little cushion. It can be retirement, IRA, 401k, and the terms and conditions of liquidation. So uh, we look at all of those things equally. One is not necessarily a compensating factor for another. If somebody doesn't have income from from a job or, or any cash flow, we will look at assets, but the assets have to be very substantial to, uh-huh. to compensate for that. Uh-huh. A bigger question then. With FICO scores are good, you know, really good scores, credit right. scores. 850 is theoretical high. Okay. Never seen it. Never seen it? <laughs> what do you see mostly? 780 is great. Uh-huh. I do see a lot of folks, especially people in the range of 40 to 65 or so that are in 800. Okay. It's pretty rare they have somebody under the age of 40, not to be ageist, but it's just a lot of the credit scoring algorithm is tied to history, to length of time. I say the older you are, the more more history you have, obviously. 
or credit history. Indeed. Yeah. The good news for first-time buyers, especially, is that if the guidelines are very lenient, 620 is the minimum FICO score. Oh. And 720, that's pretty much the minimum score for the best rates, so to speak, best terms. So credit score informs interest rate. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. There's a very uh, big matrix of risk adjusters tied to FICO score and loan to value. Okay. Loan to value is the percentage that the loan represents relative to the value of the property. The value being the purchase price, if it's a purchase? Or the appraised value, well, the right. lower of the two. Okay. So if somebody's buying a million dollar house and it appraises at $900,000, we are going to use $900,000. I understand. Are there certain liabilities that don't show up on a credit score, like student loans or tax liabilities? So the credit report is formatted to show several different things. Judgments, liens, derogatory reporting, and trade lines. A credit card, a student loan, a car loan, those are typical trade lines. The, The credit cards that people get from retailers are listed there. I had one client who had a great memorabilia collection from... Fenway Park, because every time he went, he applied for a card to get a free hat or free T-shirt. <laughs> Unfortunately, his credit score was adversely impacted, Too but bad. he had a great cabinet full of hats. <laughs> so I always advise people to be cautious about applying for cards at retail outlets. Yeah. It's really great to keep like one credit card. It's good to have, obviously, established credit. But too much, too many credit cards can be detrimental to the score. I see. And how about the people who just keep opening new cards to move balances? Does does that adversely affect as long as they're current? Well, current is is critical, but the upside of being current can be offset by the detriment of repeatedly having new credit applications. So... It's great to have one or two credit cards for a long period of time and just pay on time. Got it. And what about having closing credit cards? Does that adversely affect? It does. So one thing that I learned from my credit repair guy, which is very counterintuitive, is that in some cases, paying off old collections could hurt somebody's credit score. Oh, that is news. Very counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. You think if, if somebody's still reporting something as in collection... Yeah. Why Why would paying it hurt the score? Sure. Well, if an, if an account has been in collection for a long time, the negative aspect of that collection account has long since dissipated yeah. from the scoring algorithm. However, the length of time still factors in. Yeah. So even derogatory trade lines uh-huh. amazingly help a score a little bit because of the length of time. So the passage of time can actually make it better, not as bad. Absolutely. Okay. So it's less bad over time. Very good practice would be to consult with a lender or a credit repair person before doing anything mm-hmm. related to paying off or closing any accounts. I think what I got from your question is somebody listening might think, oh, I should just cut up some of my credit cards and yeah. cancel them. Not necessarily the case. Yeah. Well, I had heard that closing credit cards that you're not using anymore could be a store credit card or anything, you know, any kind of credit card that you're just not using anymore would harm you. 
It does. Like just closing it, even if there's no balance owed and you haven't used it in years, just the act of closing it could be harmful to your credit. Totally correct. I think the upside of closing one of those accounts is it prevents the possibility of somebody getting hold of the card and and fraudulently running up charges. But from a credit uh, score standpoint, it does not strengthen to cancel or, or, or close an account that's not in use. Okay. All right. So let's turn to ownership, home ownership and cash out. So we were talking about how to get approved right. for a mortgage, right? Right. So when I encounter situations where one person is very strong in terms of qualifying, well, let's say a young couple just got married and the wife works and has great credit and the husband is uh, in between jobs or just started a business and maybe doesn't have such good credit, I often find that we will benefit from doing the loan application just in one person's name or doing it in one person's name will result in a better rate. Yeah. So there's a lot of situations in which two people will want to buy a house together and live together, but it only makes sense financially to do the loan application in one of their names. The other person can still be on the deed. Yes. So interestingly, a person could find themselves in the situation of being 100% responsible for paying back the loan, but co-owning a home with somebody who's not in any way actually liable for repayment of the loan. Well, that's not a good situation for the person that's 100% liable, is it? Well, that would be a great referral to Hendel Grossman. Because Indel is going to look at that and create some sort of prenuptial or postnuptial, some sort of document. Mm-hmm. You could speak to that. Yes. Yes. Uh, put some sort of indemnification provision in there. If we know if this is before they get married. Yeah. I also find I'm just going to diverge for a moment to situations where people don't get married and they buy, they buy real estate together. They need a real estate agreement of some sort to address the issue you just mentioned, the liability issue. Right. I would think that you do those with some degree of frequency. I recommend them a lot. Too few people do these real estate agreements. And I'm not talking about prenups. I'm talking about something where just two people, even siblings or relatives buy real estate together. And, you know, there's repairs and there's maintenance costs and maybe one uses the property more than another. But boy, this is an area that's kind of ripe for legal intervention ahead of time and an exit plan about who buys the other one out or how you split the proceeds or how how you pay for the ongoing you know, repairs and maintenance and right. the taxes. Right. So the question that would occur to me if I was listening to this is, what if uh, my spouse and I or, or partner or anybody, friend, yeah. just write it on a piece of paper and throw it in a drawer? Uh-huh. Doesn't that count? The answer is no. And the reason is all deeds are recorded at a local registry of deeds by county. And that is what counts. And you probably, you can answer this better than me because I'm not an attorney and I don't go to court over this story, the stuff and you do. But my perspective on this is a recorded deed, two people are on it. They both own it. Mm-hmm. There's no division. Yeah. It's not like if I put down the down payment and did the mortgage, I own 80% of this and you own 20% of this. When it comes time to sell it, if you and I decide to break up, uh-huh. We're, we're splitting it uh-huh. unless unless that piece of paper was done by a qualified attorney like Del Grossman and 
whatever recordation of that uh, is done. Except for circumstances like this, where if you have two people who are unrelated, maybe they're siblings, let's say, and they buy a piece of real estate together and one puts the 100% of the down payment down and the other one doesn't, and the the other one makes them mortgage payments or pay, just pays a repair or maintenance or does something, but it's not the equivalent in dollars of the down payment, then the, if you sell the property, the distribution of the proceeds may not be equal. Oh, okay. Well, that's news to me. Right. Well, that's where you need a real estate agreement that's not just the deed recording you know, who owns the property. Okay. It would be the nuances of how that money gets divided upon sale, that kind of thing. But right. we're getting off topic from divorces. It just It's important, I'd like my listeners to hear, to have some sort of written documentation evidencing how to split up real estate in the event of a breakdown of the relationship of some sort or you know, family members need to sell. Yeah, I could tell you an example. My my daughter was living with her boyfriend and I required and they bought a townhome together and I required that they have a real estate agreement between the two of them because they, they weren't engaged at the time. They would even if they were, frankly, I would have suggested it anyway. And if they broke up and wanted to make sure my daughter was protected so that they knew what would happen about how much you know, that she got the down found down her down payment back. And one could buy the other one out based on some standard we set in the agreement and how they would divide the proceeds once they sold. So it laid it all out. The document laid it all out. Very good advice. I agree with you that most people don't do it. Yeah. So what I see a lot of is that one person comes to me and says, I want to keep the house. I want to stay. My counterparty, my my spouse, whatever, is going to go. Yeah. They're moving out and they want some money. How do we do this? The mortgage is in my name. The mortgage is is in his name, whatever. Bottom line is the mortgage needs to be refinanced. If there is no mortgage, we need to set one up so that we can have the person who's going to keep the home be on that loan as the applicant. And then what's called quick claim the other person off the deed. So, in exchange for, and this is where that, that division of ownership thing gets really important to understand, at the Registry of Deeds, if, if you and I own a house together, I, you need my signature in order to do anything, yeah. even if you don't like me anymore. You do so work together to work that out. In order for me to sign that document with the closing attorney, I'm going to take money. Uh-huh. So I think that where you and I would collaborate, Hindell, is establishing what that amount is that the other person is going to accept yeah. in exchange for signing their name off the deed giving and up going their away. Right. Yes. By signing the deed or giving up rights to a, up ownership of property. Exactly. Right? That's significant. Right. Exactly. And in most cases, it's 50% of the equity. Would you agree? Yeah, but determining what the equity is is a challenge sometimes because, as I right. say, appraising real estate is an art, not a science. Right. So you can have two appraisers and both will come up with a completely different numbers. And they may be close, but they may not be close. And But numbers. what's interesting is, to me, the only appraisal that really matters is mine uh-huh. because we get an appraisal as part of our yes. loan process, and that's what's going to end up being the, the number. That's what we'll control, yeah. So... Do we accept real estate agent opinions of value or even assessed values? No. Those numbers don't actually mean a whole lot to a mortgage underwriter. Yeah. I'm wondering about the concept of assumption that one spouse, because we're talking now about the context of divorce again, one spouse assumes the mortgage and the other one's name is removed from the mortgage, the note and the mortgage obligation. 
Have you, do you see that much? So loan assumability was more common a long time ago. It's allowed currently with FHA or VA loans, but Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the rest of the conventional forward mortgage world do not allow for assumability. So refinancing is really what people end up doing most of the time. So it's starting fresh, essentially. Assumption of a mortgage would mean keeping the same mortgage at the same rate at the same term, time term, that is, and one name just comes off of it because of the divorce. And that's not that common anymore. It is not. I do see a lot of recasting, which really doesn't have a whole lot to do with divorce. And that's where a principal is paid down and the payment is recalculated. It's not a refinance because it's the same loan. It's just with a different payment amount after the recast. What's a recast? Recasting. I see it a lot where people are moving from one home to another and then selling the home they moved out of. Uh So they have this huge chunk of money, the proceeds from the sale. Yeah. And they don't want to refinance because they got a great rate or don't want to go through the hassle. So they just want their payment to go down. So they pay down the mortgage by usually at least $5,000 and get a new payment amount. It's keeping the same loan and re-amortizing. Point being, that is more common than assumption, assumability. And certainly in divorce, refinancing is is really the most normal. But I didn't know about recasting, so that's a good tip. So $5,000 doesn't sound like a lot in order to... People usually don't recast for, for that amount. I, I'm seeing more like six-figure yeah. reductions in principles yeah. for recasting. That's when it's meaningful and, and worth going through the exercise. Got it. Do you recommend people pay down their principal in higher amounts than is required? That's a good question. So most financial planners that I know and work with do not. They advise 30-year terms because mortgage rates are so low. Yeah. It makes sense to string that loan out for the full term and have money in the markets. Mm. So So most financial planners will say, I can make more money for you than 3.75%. So keep your mortgage at 3.75%. Don't pay it off and just give me the money and I'll throw it in the stock market and make you more. Got it. I see why that makes sense financially. All right. Well, we've talked about a lot of topics today. Anything else you want to tell us about mortgages? Only that rates are at a three-year low, so it's a great time to be buying real estate or looking to refinance a mortgage. Great time to look at getting rid of PMI, if you have PMI, so that's private mortgage insurance. When somebody puts less than 20% down, in a lot of cases, there's a monthly insurance premium associated with that loan, and we can make that go away because property values have come up uh, through refinancing. I say, so if you refinance, the process is to do an application, obviously, and then there's an appraisal done by the lender, like Fairway, right? Very good question. Refinancing fundamentally is replacing an existing mortgage just with a new mortgage. So we pay off the current loan as part of that process at closing. So yeah, it's a full application, full underwrite for a new loan. The good news is with my past clients, I'm going through and just pulling their applications Uh, from our archives. It saves them a little bit of hassle, but we still need to update supporting documents. Okay. And um, it's common to get a pre-qualification letter, isn't it, from initially before the whole underwriting process is complete? Absolutely. I'm doing that with a high degree of frequency. Right now, we're recording this uh, in late July. 
it's it's prime time for people who uh, want to close, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and get their kids into the school systems for for September first. So we are definitely uh, swamped right now with with clients looking to buy homes. So what do you see when you give a pre approval letter, and then subsequent to that, it goes through the final approval process with underwriting? Do you see consistency of that the pre approval letter is consistent with the ultimate uh, final approval for? For financing, I do, I do, and and really pretty reliable is what I'm asking. So I, I was bragging about uh, the platform that we have at Fairway, and the reason I can I can say that is we do a tremendous amount of diligence upfront with our clients at the very beginning. Day one application is the most work for our client. Uh-huh because we want to make sure there's no ambiguity or as little ambiguity as possible. Obviously, we can't control everything. We can't control the appraisal. We can't control employment situations uh, after we've done our initial vetting, but we sure can control that initial application and what we know, how much we verify. So just to take you through that for a second, we do a pre-qualification, which is me taking the application, basic information, and pulling credit. So that's pre-qualification. You get income information. All of it. Yeah. All of it. And then once we issue a pre-qualification letter, we go to pre-approval. So pre-approval is recommended because that shows the seller of a property that we've done our really truly deepest diligence and reviewed tax returns, pay stubs, W-2s, and bank statements. And all of that is reviewed before we issue a pre-approval letter, yeah. which, as I said, is the highest diligence that we can do. Okay. And pre-approval letters sometimes have a contingency or two in there about subject to appraisal, for example. It's or... got to be subject to appraisal, purchase and sale agreement, uh, if they're buying a condo, condominium association approval. Got it. All right. I understand the steps better. Jesse, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for yeah, coming for our podcast today. And this is Hindel Grossman. From Grossman and Associates, uh, a podcast called Inside Divorce. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman and Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H I N D E L L, or call us at 617 Nine six nine zero zero six nine. Thank you for listening.